The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. But we are going to be in Mark chapter 12, looking specifically now at verses 28 through 34. So uh, follow along with me in your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, it's fine. We'll have the, the passage here behind me. This is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered him, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Then the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and that there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Let's pray. Father, we ask God that we would glean some wisdom from our Lord Jesus today. And that, Lord, you, through your Holy Spirit, would enable our hearts to love God with everything that we are, every fiber of our being, and Father, would you also enable us to love other people so that they may see your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Leave it on the field is a term that you'll often hear coaches tell their, uh, their players. It's a phrase that's meant to inspire them to go out onto the field or onto the court or the rink or the course or whatever it is uh, to give everything that they have, to hold nothing back, give 110%. Everything that you have, leave out there. It is meant to help the athlete uh, after the game not be able to look back and say, I wish I could have given more. There was some more that I could have had and I just didn't give it. Uh, they don't want uh, you to leave feeling like you played it safe when you had the opportunity to do something greater and go beyond your own bounds. When I think of leaving it all in the field, I actually think of uh, Jesse Diggins. Uh, Jesse Diggins, along with her, uh, her uh, teammate, uh, Kicken Randall, won the first gold medal for any cross-country skier in the United States ever in history at the 2018 Olympic Games in Pyeongchang. And as much as uh, she made the entire United States proud, she makes Minnesota proud because she's from Afton and actually skied at uh, the Vasalopet when she was uh, a little bit uh, younger. And it's especially fun to watch her ski at the end of the race because uh, what she has been doing this entire time is nothing compared to how hard she is pushing at the end of her race. There's no indication that she's letting up. There's no indication that she is going to just uh, stay steady and constant. Rather, she is going to finish strong. And it is abundantly clear that she's, every, that she's giving everything she got because when she crosses the finish line, she often just collapses on the snow. 
She's not collapsing because she won a medal. She's collapsing because she is completely gassed. There's nothing left in her. She gave everything that she has. One Olympic commenter said at this past year's Olympics that Diggins says that when she collapses in the snow after a race, she feels like she's floating and the world is spinning around her. That's what I feel like before I'm about to pass out. She says that she sometimes has to hold on to the snow to keep from spinning. So when she skis, there's no doubt that she leaves everything on the field or the, the snow, however you want to look at it. Now, when you think about your life, particularly as uh, in your life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, would you say that you leave it all on the field? Would you say that you were giving 100% of yourself in loving and serving God and doing uh, what he asks you to do? If you're like everyone else, then you're probably no spiritual Jesse Diggins. There are things that captivate your attention and, and command your affection far more easily and far more deeply than your attention and affection for God. So instead of pressing hard into, into God and racing towards excellence and in love and service of him, you're more concerned about enjoying the ski race and having fun and going through leisurely. And when our hearts are divided in such ways, we tend to settle for mediocrity in our faith. In learning to follow and obey Jesus, what we call discipleship, just getting by or doing the status quo is often our modus operandi. And in our text this morning, Jesus lays out the game plan for what it looks like for a disciple of his to leave it all on the field, to give everything that they have in our pursuit of knowing God and living for his glory. And in doing so, Jesus warns us that it is possible to come really, really close, but not quite close enough in our walk with him. So, you ready? Let's dig in. If we want to leave it all in the field, we first have to love God and others above everything. There's only two points, by the way. So if you're budgeting your space on your paper, uh, there's only two instead of three on there. We need to love God and others above everything. Uh, it was Tuesday of Holy Week, and Jesus had entered uh, into this morning getting barraged with uh, accusatory questions from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. These questions had the, the intention of having Jesus slip up and reveal something about himself or potentially his views so that they could prosecute him, that they could take him to court and finally get rid of this guy. They questioned him about his authority. They questioned him about his views on taxes. And they questioned him about his views on the resurrection. Three very, very controversial subjects. Uh, at the time of, of Jesus. And every time they ask him a question, Jesus both tells them the truth and he also twists the questions so that it points the finger at them and sees how they are not fulfilling their own question. And up to this point, instead of being trapped, Jesus, through his divine wisdom, has shown them who he is, that he is truly the Son of God. Now in verse 28, he's, he's not approached by a group. He's actually approached by an individual. 
this individual was part of a group called the scribes, and the scribes were the, the uh, experts in the law. They were the lawyers of the day. These were ones that, that knew everything back and forth when it came to the 613 commands of the Torah. They knew every one of the 345 provision or prohibitions and the 248 positive commandments. They knew well the distinction in the rabbinic tradition between what they called heavy laws and light laws. Heavy laws being the much more serious ones and the light ones being the ones that uh, aren't quite so serious. Uh, a good equivalent of that today would be in the Roman Catholic tradition, how they have two different levels of sin. One that's venial and one that's mortal. If you have a mortal sin, that's much more serious and deserving of eternal condemnation. And the venial ones are the ones that, oh, they're a little bit lighter and they're a little bit easier to, uh, to uh, get rid of. So because this man was well-versed in the law and because he recognized Jesus' wisdom... He asked Jesus what he thought was a legal question. He asked him, which command is the most important of all? Now this question is perhaps the most important question that any human being can ever take up in their entire life. It is fundamental to who we are as human beings. And what God requires of us. What is our purpose? And it's imperative because it is asking the Lord of the universe. The creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. The one whom all of our lives are bound to and owed to. Jesus. And though the scribe comes to him with a question of the law. Jesus doesn't just give him a legal answer. And that's because what God demands of all humanity is not just legal, it's moral. We have a legal obligation toward God to obey whatever it is that uh, Jesus says is the greatest command. And we have a moral uh, obligation to obey it because he is God. Now in verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the passage that Jesus is referencing here goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It was a passage that every single Jew would have had memorized in Jesus' time. It was a passage that was the first thing that they said when they woke up in the morning. And was the last thing that they said when they went to bed at night. It was called the Shema, which literally means listen. And to those of you that are parents, you know well what the difference between hearing and listening is. I can ask my children to, to come here, and they may acknowledge, yes, I heard what you said. But unless they actually come to me, they weren't listening. They might have heard, but they weren't listening. And here, this is what the Shema is talking about. It is not enough just to hear, it is to listen. It is listening that involves action. Um, so here, uh, Jesus tells him that the most important thing that we need to do is to listen and obey what follows in the Shema. And the first is, is that we are to know that the Lord God is one that he is the only God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
It comes in a context of when the Israelites had fled from uh, Pharaoh's captivity after being slaves for nearly 400 years. They were out in the wilderness and they knew absolutely nothing of a monotheistic God. They knew nothing of one God. They were used to a, an Egyptian pantheon. They uh, were used to the Canaanite and, and, the, and the pagan pantheon around them, or polytheism, I should say, not pantheism. Um, two different things. But to have one God and to make him as the only God was completely foreign and absolutely radical to the Israelites and everyone around them at this time. So if we want to know what God expects of us, it is first to believe that God is the one true and living God and that he alone is God. And in that statement, there's an expectation of worship. Because God is God alone, he expects us to worship him and nothing else. And lest we think that idolatry is only referring to bowing down to metal and wood-carved images, we ought to look at ourselves and see what takes priority in our heart. Have we, um, when we get honest with ourselves, paid too much focus on our money or our family or relationships or work or sports? Do we spend more time thinking and dwelling on them than we do the excellencies and the, the goodness of our God? See, idolatry is anything that we put in our heart before God. The Shema here uses the commitment, this commitment to the Lord as singular now, as the backdrop of how we are to relate to him. Look at verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all of your strength. So because he is God alone, he is deserving of all of you. And we could take a whole morning and talk about what all four of those things are. But suffice it to say, he is saying that we are to worship God alone with every part that makes us who we are. And God is worthy of our devotions, not just because he is God, but because he is good. Look at what the psalmist writes in Psalm 145. We're going to look at this next week. But he says that the Lord is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He is great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone and his compassion rests on all that he has made. So because he is the highest good of anything in all creation, he doesn't simply request that we love him. He demands that we love him. Have you ever taken into consideration that the number one thing that, that God demands of us above all else is that we love him primarily? The fact that we don't shows us the depths of sin and how it's corrupted our, our hearts. We are so morally flawed that in our natural state, we can't even muster up the kind of love for God that he demands of us. It should be the most natural thing that a human can do. But 
how many of us can force ourselves to love something? Think about it. Did you have to be coaxed into falling in love with your spouse? You know, I, I, when I met Julie, I don't remember a time when I said, you know what, I, I probably should love her. So I'm just going to have to figure out how to make that happen. No, it doesn't happen that way. It happens naturally. You can't will yourself to love something. I really love chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. I don't know why. I just do. I don't like black licorice. I didn't teach myself to say, oh, black licorice is gross, and I love this kind of ice cream. It just is natural to who I am. But how are we to love him here? Jesus continues the quote of the Shema by saying, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So that's top on the list. And when we find that that's true of us, Jesus tells us that there's a penultimate command. It's the one right under that. And that is in verse 31, that the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't think it is, it is arrogant or, um, or even sinful to consider the love of self. Every one of us loves ourselves, but uh, it's a matter of how far do you, do you take that. We want what's best for us. We want to live happy, healthy, uh, productive, meaningful lives. And there's absolutely nothing wrong about that. Now think about it. When we suffer, or especially when we suffered, uh, suffer from a, a disordered mind, this is true of us. Think about the person that, that might have uh, an over-obsession with their body image. Is it because they hate themselves or hate their body? It's not. It's because they love themselves and they want to be something that they're not. And we could even go to an extreme example of someone that may have suicidal tendencies. Is that individual struggling with that because they hate themselves in their life? No. Fundamentally at its root, it's because of love of themselves and wanting relief from that for themselves. Well, that's an extreme example, but it shows how deep that goes for us. And so what if we transferred this desire of self-preservation, self-care, and we placed it onto love for others? But the way that you care for yourself, the way that you maintain yourself, the way that you would go out of your way to do the things that you want to do for yourself. What would that look like if you transferred that into how you care for other people? Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look only to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And we can't even begin to love like that, as great as it sounds, until we first do what Jesus asks us to do um, in loving and pursuing God. And so that's why Jesus said now in verse 31 that... There's no other commandment that's greater than these. There's nothing that you can do that is greater than loving God primarily and loving others. So putting these together then, we find that Jesus' primary desire and his, his primary command 
for us. The most important thing that you can do uh, is to love God with your entire being and then to, to focus that love on, on other people and showing them God's greatness. Perhaps even the ones that we don't like. But the question is, how do we do that? So here's a little insight into old Pastor Mike here. I don't even come close to this. I wish that I could love God the way that Jesus commands me to. I wish that I could love him consistently with everything I have. I wish that I could love you and I could love the community more than myself or more than anything else here, but I can't. The effects of sin are simply that deep. And the same is true for you. You are commanded to love God completely. And all that you can offer him is weak and insufficient love. However, there is one that fulfilled this and fulfills it even to today. Completely. There is one who loved his heavenly father with every fiber of his being. And because he, he did so, he displayed the perfect love for God and the perfect love for us by giving himself for us. When Jesus uh, lived and when he died on the cross, his love for the Father was pouring out and his love for us was being uh, displayed by offering all of himself, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to us. And so now, by God's grace, through faith, his perfect love for God the Father is attributed to us. Where we're, we are weak and helpless. Jesus is strong and mighty. And in faith, his strength and his love is attributed to our account. And in response, we joyfully now pour ourselves out for others. So that they will in turn love the Lord, their God, with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, we need to first... Love God and others above everything. And second, we need to get it out of our head. Get it into our life. Get it out of our head and into our life. There's no good reason to believe that the scribe has any real problem with Jesus. It's the first time this whole day that someone has come up to him and it's been amicable in their dialogue. And it might be hard to see at first blush, but the problem here is actually in the man's response. Look with me in verse 32. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. There's no one else except him. And to love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so now you might say, Pastor, that sounds really good. I mean, he's agreeing with Jesus. And it's good. It is, I would even say it's great to agree with Jesus. That is what we should do. But simply agreeing with Jesus is not enough. The question is not whether or not this man comprehends and harmonizes with Jesus' views. The question
question is whether or not that information filters down from his head into his heart and then out into his life. You know, I can go to YouTube and I can watch all kinds of videos on how to fix cars. And I can memorize them, what they say. I can have all the mental pictures. But unless I actually go into a garage and start fixing something, I can't call myself a mechanic. I can open up and, uh, you know, go to and get my master's degree in uh, mortuary science. Read every book that's out there on how to run a um, memorial service. How to embalm a body, you know, all those things. But unless I'm actually working in a funeral home, I can't call myself a funeral director. It has to actually come out in action. So that's why we need to be careful when we read in verse 34, because it can seem like Jesus is actually commending this man, which he is. He has a very wise answer. But notice how Jesus responds to him then in uh, the last part of our section here. Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far but you're not far enough yet. So this is where so many professing Christians, I think, are in danger. There is an assumption that if we just have all the right answers, that if we have all the right Bible verses memorized, and we soak in as much knowledge as we possibly can, then we're good. If we just go through the, the New City Catechism, or if we come from a different tradition and we go through the confirmation process, we memorize all the things that go with it, and we actually pass the exams from those, then we're good and we're right with Jesus. But if we don't have faith that results in a deep, deep love for God, and that love pouring out into the lives of others, we may not be far from the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is not yet in us. Many of you know that I'm an avid fan of the Minnesota Vikings. You, you probably already know where I'm going with this. You might say that a Minnesota Vikings fan is built on the fact that we're close, but not close enough. In 1998, when Gary Anderson barely missed the field goal. I mean, it wasn't that one where that one kid, what was it, where he kicked it and it was like wide by a mile in Seattle. What was, what was his name? Uh, Blair Walsh, yeah. It wasn't like that. That guy missed it by a mile, mile. But if you go back and watch the Gary Anderson kick, it's like right there. Do you think after that game, the coach and the players came up to Gary and said, yeah, Gary, we were close enough. No. He was close. But Gary Anderson costed them this going to the Super Bowl. He was close, but he wasn't close enough. And maybe you're here today and you need to examine your heart. You're on the one-yard line. There's five seconds left. It's fourth down. And you're down by six. Let's say five to make it a little bit easier. What are you going to do? Are you content with just 
getting the ball hiked to you and kneeling and then that just being the game and say, yeah, we are so close to winning. And I'm just okay with, you know, walking off the field. Or are you going to go for it? Some of us might find ourselves not being far from the kingdom of God. But not far enough. Some of us might find that our knowledge of God is the very thing that keeps us from God. What this man is missing and what some of us are missing, perhaps it's, it's what you're missing, is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, or what he didn't say. Notice Jesus didn't say that the Son of Man came to seek and to teach the lost. He came to seek and teach the lost, we would still be lost. But notice that what Jesus actually said. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to save us from our lack of love for God. He came to save us from our lack of love for other people. And so it is that Jesus and Jesus alone, through him, that we are able to push through the one-yard line into the end zone. In faith and trust in Christ alone, we go from not being close enough to being in. From the kingdom of God not being far to the kingdom of God being within you. So we need to get this out of our head. We need to get it into our heart. We need to get it out into our life. And it's really inspiring to watch top-notch athletes do everything that they have or give everything that they have on the field. But when I look at my own life, there are far too many areas, especially in my affection for God, that I am lazy. I'm far too captivated by technology, entertainment, and so many other things that this world has to offer. And maybe you are too. But Jesus calls us to something greater. He calls us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. It's a tall order, but because Jesus went before us, in his life, death, and resurrection, he empowers us by his grace through faith to do that which we naturally cannot do. Love him and love others. There's nothing more important than that.